Hi there, it's Melvin. Just wanted to take a moment to thank the team over at Thryzer for supporting this month's podcast sessions. Thryzer is a payment platform that you have to check out if you are a private pay therapist and accepting out-of-network benefits. It basically helps clients save on therapy up front. Thryzer can help verify a client's out-of-network benefit ahead of the first session so that they get transparency up front on what their out-of-pocket costs will be. I'll tell you more about Thryzer here in the middle of our session, but if you go to sellingthecouch.com forward slash Thryzer, you actually then enter the code STC upon sign up, you get your first $2,500 in fees waived. Again, that's over at sellingthecouch.com forward slash Thryzer, and be sure to enter the promo code STC. So we'll jump right into today's podcast session. Hello, hello. Welcome to session 149 of Selling the Couch. Hope you are having a great start to your day. I am so ready for winter to be over. It's so interesting. I feel like I grew up in India, as you guys uh, know. I spent most of my childhood and and college years in Texas, where it was also like very hot. But now I cannot tolerate any extreme temperatures, and it's been unbearably cold here in Philly. Actually, when I'm recording this, this is actually late. The last, it's actually, I'm recording this on January 31st. And this morning we woke up and it was 13 degrees outside. And I was like, I don't want to be out here. But uh, wherever you are, I I hope that you're warming up and uh, that you're doing well. Today's podcast conversation is with Dr. Erica Martinez. Erica is a psychologist down in Miami, and she's over at envisionwellness.co. And today's topic is one that I know that We've had multiple conversations in the STC community about, which is how do you build a private pay practice in a heavily insurance-based city? Erica has actually done this where she jumped into private practice in 2015, and she has learned quite a few lessons of what to do and what not to do. And I'm just so grateful to her for wanting to come on the podcast and and share some of those lessons that she's learned along the way. So in today's conversation, we're going to learn a couple of different things. And one of those is we're just going to talk about Erica's like initial journey and you'll hear it and it's very interesting like Erica actually had to create a private pay practice sort of based on circumstance and so there was this moment where Erica could have said you know what this is way too hard to do this I'm just gonna you know continue to be an independent contractor or work in a group practice but something in Erica made her want to keep pushing forward and so we talk about sort of the mental aspect of realizing you want to build a private pay practice but then being surrounded by you know just being in a place where there might be a lot of folks want to use insurance and then we get into this discussion of niching and whether and sort of Erica's experience with finding a niche her own struggle with niching and whether she really believes that certain niches or populations are more conducive to a, a private pay practice. And then we wrap up with a couple of different things. One is Erica guides us through the conversation that she has with a client who's interested in her services, but wants to use her insurance. And so how does she sort of navigate that? And then we wrap up with 
the three biggest tips that Erica has learned in her private practice journey when it comes to creating a private pay practice in a city where it is so insurance heavy? Today's podcast is supported by Turning Point HQ. Uh, This is a brand new sponsor on the STC podcast, but David and I call him Dave. Dave and I have gotten to know each other over the past two years. He was a previous STC podcast guest. And honestly, Dave is one of the most kind and generous and helpful people that I know. And with sponsors, you guys know I'm I'm super discretionary in terms of who I share uh, the STC audience with. And Dave, when uh, we talked about sponsorship, he was one of those people. I just, I had zero doubt. And so Dave is a financial planner, uh, specifically for therapists, and his whole mission is to transform your relationship with money. I know for many of us, uh, money is something that, and the money stories that we have often been told, it impacts a lot of how we do business. It impacts how we approach things like retirement and investing and all of those things. And Dave understands that, and he comes from just a very heart-centered place to help us build out an investment in a retirement portfolio. Dave actually has this really cool guide. Uh, It's absolutely free to download, and it's called The 7 Money Mistakes That Hold Therapists Back. You can find it over at sellingthecouch.com forward slash turning point HQ. And that guide has a lot of the things that, that can hold a lot of therapists back. And actually, if you go through that link as well, you get $200 off any service that Dave provides. So we'll jump into right into it. Um, here's my conversation with Erica Martinez from envisionwellness.co. And if you want to follow along with show notes, you can find those over at sellingthecouch.com forward slash session and the number 149. Hey, Erica, welcome to Selling the Couch. Thanks so much for having me, Melvin. I'm kind of nerdily excited for this <laughs> me too <laughs> for this conversation because I, I just feel like so many clinicians struggle with this. I mean and we were actually just talking about this right before we started recording that I mean there's just been so many conversations about cash pay practices. I feel like that's sort of the holy grail of private <laughs> practice, right? But the reality is many clinicians are in like cities of all different sizes and especially cities where there can be, it's like a heavily insurance-based city. And so we're just talking all about, and you're in such a city and you've been able to build a a successful private pay practice. And we're just talking about what you've kind of learned along the way. And I'm grateful for this conversation. I am too. I'm really happy and and stoked that you reached out and and that I'm getting to do this with you. Yeah. So I wanted to start out, I was like, what should I ask, Eric? (laughs) And the first question I had was, some clinicians, I feel like they know that they want to build a private pay practice from the onset. Others transition slowly, like, for example, they may be on some panels, and then they kind of wean off panels. And then sometimes for other clinicians, it's almost forced, right? They get frustrated waiting for reimbursement or whatever, any kind of other factors, right? What was it like for you in that journey? So for me, initially, having come from a really heavy and based group practice where I was an independent contractor at, my initial gut was get on panels. That's all I knew. And nobody that I knew did private practice solely as cash pay. Hmm. So initially, I did try to get on panels and it just didn't work out. And I 
found out later on that the reason it didn't work out was because I was newly licensed. I had probably been licensed maybe a year. And when I got the rejection letters from the panels, it was, that's often what it stated, right? Like you need to be licensed for at least three to four years before we let you on to this panel, even if the panels were open, which in a really saturated market like South Florida, I'm in Miami, they're rarely ever open. (laughs) All right. So I had no choice right out of the gate, but to do cash pay. So Hmm. I was forced into it just because of the circumstances that I was in. That's crazy. Like, was that, I think for me, if I were in that situation, I would be so overwhelmed because I felt like starting a practice is already hard enough, but then being almost like forced to do cash pay would add like a different layer of anxiety for me. What was it like for you? (laughs) So, you know, for me, it's funny, like, I guess because I'm such a high achiever kind Mm -hmm. of a person, it became a challenge. And I'm the kind of person that when somebody challenges me, I don't back down from the fight Mm -hmm. to my benefit or to my detriment. (laughs) (laughs) So I just took it as a challenge and took on the just took on the decision to go ahead and, and try, right? So I did it. I figured out I needed a, a certain base of income. So I stayed with my independent contract job, hmm. um, secured a, another independent contract job while I got enough clientele into my practice hmm. so that then I could slowly wean off my, yeah. my contract jobs. Yeah. So there's a couple of like really cool things you're saying in there. One is, this is such a subtle thing, but whenever you got the news that these panels were closed or they weren't accepting, you know, those because of those factors, like you didn't internalize that as sort of a thing against your worth. You more saw it as like, this is an external thing. And what I need to do is like, this is like I've got enough, I've gone to grad school, you know, I'm a psychologist, right? So I've got enough stuff where I've dealt with, you know, dissertation, all this stuff, right? Where you saw it as this is sort of another challenge that I can take on, right? It became less about you is what I sense. Yeah. And I think the reason that I didn't internalize that is because in my personal life, I had to develop grit and resilience early, very early on. And I think that's part of what makes me such a high achiever. Hmm. And so I took those skills for that I had developed in my personal life. And then I found a way to use them in my professional life. Dissertation, all that stuff. Yeah, it was challenging, but I don't know that any of it has been as challenging as this journey. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I, I just think like when I hear things like that, I often think about like how all of this stuff in private practice, right? It's not just about related to kind of the present aspect of it. It's all of the stuff we've dealt with growing up and how that's shaped who we are. And at times like that's super challenging, but I think at other times, like it really can be the source of inspiration that pushes us forward. Yeah. And I don't know where I heard it, but when it comes to my niche and to my marketing, for me, I heard it somewhere and it really like resonated with me, make your mess your message. And so this is very much a journey that is personal and professional all in the same vein, all at the same time. It's like just so like beautifully inspirational because I feel like it's not just about building a business, right? Like this is really about there's something personal and it's about like the impact that you're having, you know, and that's not just like the end goal of this is just to build a 
a business or to reach a certain income level or whatever it is, you know? Right. Man, you're saying a lot of different stuff. I'm trying to think of different. (laughs) So how did you figure out the niches that are the niche that you wanted to focus on initially? Well, there's a story there. Mm. So I was incredibly blessed with having met Miranda and Kelly from Zinimi at the outset of this journey. I've not been on this journey by myself. They've walked alongside me the whole way. And when it came to niching, I was very resistant, like many therapists, (laughs) simply also because I was trained in therapy, but I'm really a neuropsychologist by trade. Like that's how I was trained. I was trained to be a psychodiagnostician to test and test and test. And that, that was really like, that was my strong muscle. Right. And so I quickly realized under their guidance that I needed to ride one horse in this private practice journey. And that my first task would be to niche. Are you, am I going to do therapy or am I going to niche in testing? And just from a practicality purpose, I had to ride that one horse. And so I decided, you know what, I'm going to, work on therapy first because testing has a lot of upfront cost to it. You have to buy the materials, it's expensive, and there's not a lot of residual kind of income with it. Whereas with therapy, you see somebody on a weekly basis and and there's a certain residual income that comes with that, right? Right. So residual, you're saying sort of there's a, I guess, a reoccurring element to therapy. Um, How did you figure out that there would be so many like upfront costs to the testing was it just based on experience or just what yeah i just i know the measures i know how expensive they are i also did the research mm. just the on especially with the shifts now from paper-based testing to online based testing and scoring it's getting even more expensive i feel mm. and they're changing the tests and updating the tests much more frequently the versions and so every time they do that the price of of measures go up so mm. I figured I'll I'll start with therapy that will give me a stable base Hmm. along with my contract jobs. And then I can start marketing more testing. And Hmm. so initially that was the first niche. And then since then I've actually niched down even further into first, probably a population. Hmm. And then I've now I'm niching down further into like a specialty. So, okay. So you, the first thing was sort of testing versus therapy, and then you niched right. down to a population. So what was the population you niched down to? Millennials. You focused on millennials. Yeah. Right? Mil- and what yeah. made you choose millennials? <laughs> well, I'm pretty young. <laughs> and so I found that it's who I resonate well with. Hmm. Before getting licensed, I was a, a high school teacher for 10 years. I had no idea. Yeah. So I taught AP, U.S. government, political science and economics. Hmm. And so it's an age group that I resonate really well with. And they're all high achieving millennials. And hmm. and I realized I work really well with that population. I get them. They get me. And, and it was just like, that's my sweet spot, you know? And a lot of them now are professionals and they're grown up, you know, especially the older ones. But it's just an age group that I really love. And I think that has kind of broadened a little bit to entrepreneurs as well, mm. simply because I'm, you know, also an entrepreneur. Mm. So so I'm able to get them as well. I feel like there's like this like neat pearl of wisdom there, which is I think sometimes when we're starting practices, we kind of just wanna like focus on just that present thing, right? But 
what you did was you actually like took a step back and you looked at your life and sort of your life experiences and more than just, I think really found something where you thought, you know what, like, what did I do that I just like truly like enjoyed, you know? And it sounds like that was like sort of asking, I guess, a variation of that question was something that was helpful in arriving at like, you know what, I love working with millennials, like with high achievers. I do good work with them. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. And it wasn't like I sat one down one day and, and I sat for 15 or 20 minutes or an hour or two hours. It's a process. It's an iteration. And so I started my practice in earnest in June of 2015. Mm. And so this, it's still a process that's unfolding and I keep iterating. And even recently, like in the fall of last year, like it something just clicked in me and, and I realized something new about the kind of cases that I've been bringing in and, and I'm being attracted to. And, and I was speaking to Lotus Fiatio about this a couple of weeks ago mm. and <laughs> it just, the light bulb really went off in that conversation about this new niche that's really unfolding, which is really like a sub niche in mm. trauma and emotional neglect. That's so fascinating. So I think the big lesson that I'm taking away from this is sometimes like you take the information and you start somewhere because I think for a lot of us, like we want to have it like perfectly planned out into these niches and sub niches and micro niches. Whereas the reality is like, once we start somewhere, there's stuff, there's basically data and stuff we don't know yet until we start. Right. And if we try to like over plan, it just gets too. I don't know. Yeah. I think that that, if I could say I've made a mistake, it's been trying to do what you just described, trying to get it perfect, trying to get it right. Mm. Is probably the biggest mistake I made in right out of the gate because there's no such thing. It's a fallacy. There's no such thing. I think if it, whoever's listening to this and if they're kind of stuck in this cycle of I'm trying to get it right, I'm trying to get it perfect, you're shooting yourself in your foot. <laughs> and I think the other thing I've realized is like because of our training and our experiences, like for me at least, it's been really surprising to see like how like flexible I am, like when it comes to like something not working out. And I feel like all of us are equipped with this, which is we have sort of the the creative bent to be able to say, you know what, this isn't quite working out the way I want. And let me try to tweak it. I think like, I always thought, oh my gosh, I got to get this perfect. Because if I don't get it perfect, maybe I just gonna like crash to the floor kind of thing, you know? Yeah, I think you know, when we've been in school, as long as, as we have for our training, there's always something attached to the outcome and the outcome being just so, right? A grade, passing a test, a license, what have you. And so we kind of, I think graduate school beats out that creativity that you just, that adaptability that you just described. And it's just a matter of like getting reacquainted and with it and relearning it. Do you think certain niches or populations are more like conducive to building a private pay practice just based on your experience? I think, for example, in my experience, I think therapy versus testing lends itself better, especially early days into a private practice. Mm. As far as like niching within the therapy, yes and no. I think everybody to some degree can understand when you say I specialize in anxiety, I specialize in depression, PTSD or trauma. It's like a yes and a no. I think what really helps in building a private practice is being very clear about the service that you're offering mm. and what makes you different when, and special 
as a therapist when you're offering that service. I think that's what makes it, I guess, easier when you're doing the niching. Right. So it's, it's as much about, I guess, clarity. So when somebody that's potentially interested in services, when they look, can they, I must call it making this term up if I heard it, but like if you were to close your eyes and you open it like on Eric on your website, can somebody just when they open their eyes within a couple of seconds, can they figure out who it is that you work with and who it is that you serve? Right. Right. Absolutely. Like before we started recording, I had a call from someone and they said, I knew exactly who who you were. And speaking to you now on the phone just confirms everything that I saw on, on the website. Hmm. And so it's about being able to present your authentic self clearly on a website, on a promo video. I mean, however it is you're doing that marketing so that whoever you're reaching can get a really clear sense of you and your vibe and whether in fact you can help them. I wanted to transition a little bit to mm-hmm. kind of the meat of you know the conversation, which is trying to build this cash pay or private pay practice in a heavily insurance-based area. What was the biggest mental hurdle that you had working and trying to create a private pay practice in an area that was so like insurance saturated? It was probably, I would say risk, learning how to tolerate risk. When you're starting a cash pay practice, there's a certain instability and uncertainty, right? Like You can do all the marketing, you can shake hands, you can meet people, you can network, you can put up the website, but you can't make the phone ring, right? That part is outside of your hands. And so just like, getting comfortable with the vulnerability that comes with waiting for the phone to ring. But also the fact that, you know, this is going to take time to build. And there is a certain level of risk in terms of whenever you're doing something entrepreneurial, there's a risk you take. And so getting comfortable and learning to stomach that, that risk and that uncertainty Mm -hmm. of, I don't know when the phone's going to ring. I know it's going to ring because I'm doing the things I need to do, but I don't know when. Right. At a practical level, what things have you done to be able to stomach that better? You know, my family, my husband has been incredibly supportive. He, by nature, has a higher level of risk. So I think just being around him, um, I've learned to to be able to take more risk. And now, and I didn't realize that I, I was very risk tolerant in my personal life. And that was something else that, from my personal life that I've been able to now tap into in my professional life. Hmm. In my personal life, I'm very much like burn the ships, like no holds barred, burn the ships. I'm not going back. And so I've been able to to tap into that energy into this private practice and in this business journey. So I would say that's been one thing. I think the other thing is for me, it's there's been a lot of shaming from colleagues in the community. And I think it's important to speak to that that in a really heavily insurance-based city, I've been told all kinds of things about what I can and what I couldn't do and what I should and shouldn't do by others in the mental health field. And I've been made to feel like crap for doing business this way, right? Because, you know, you're charging too much and, you know, you're not really helping people. All you really want is money and that's why you charge so much. And so there's a lot of that, even from colleagues, a lot of limiting beliefs placed on me from colleagues. So 
I've learned to stay away from those people, that those relationships really don't serve me. They don't resonate with me. I call them anchors because they weigh me down. And so I've stayed away from people that I can perceive as anchors. And I surround myself with people that are like-minded and supportive of my dreams. I think one of the things that I've learned with with STC is like, I feel like every time I take sort of a new risk, like there's the internal doubts and fears I have, but it is interesting, like how folks will sometimes kind of pop up and be like, what are you doing? You know? And even if I've thought it through and it is like, I think this is something that we don't maybe speak enough about is, you know, how much our, our own pain and our own insecurities like affect one another as clinicians, you know? Right. And so for me, it was incredibly, it was incredibly hurtful to hear colleagues who, I mean, I loved and adored just personally and professionally hear them say to me, well, you can't do this and you should take insurance. Mm. You're not really helping people if you don't take insurance. Who can afford to pay you that much? So there were a lot of, and there still are comments like that. So you know, I realize that that's their money issue, not mine, mm-hmm. and that I I can't take their issue on onto myself. So it sounds like there's just a couple of like things that you do at a practical level. One is you sort of like tease out where sort of your struggles start and end, right? right. And then you're really like cautious about sort of distinguishing. I like what you, the word used, anchor, right? Like, so you mm-hmm. sort of like parcel that out and say like, I would imagine even like things, comments that you might hear, those might even be anchors as well, right? Not just people. Sure. So just being able to sort of separate that out. And then I think what you're also saying is it's that burn the ships mentality, right? Like only, I think I have like a newfound respect or understanding of this, which is we're the only ones who truly understand the depth of everything that we go through, not just within practice, but outside of practice, right? So like at some point, I think what we all have to do is aspire to what private practice looks like for us, right? Right. Even, and that's like, it's this weird tension of saying, okay, this is what it looks like for me. And this is what it looks like for someone else. And it looks really different than mine, but that's okay. Right. Very much so. And, and I was guilty of that comparison too. Like I looked at a lot of people who were, you know, in the middle of their journey or much later on in their private practice journey you know, 30 years in. And I thought, and I would think to myself, oh gosh, like (laughs) I have to do this like that. And, and I would say like in the last year, I've really let go of that. And it's incredibly freeing feeling to not feel like I have to justify myself to anyone about how I run my business. You know, this last month even has been quite an exercise (laughs) in that as I've imperfectly attempted to expand into a group practice. So hmm. always learning and always growing, right? <laughs> always learning. You know, if you're you know, if you're not learning and you're not you're not growing. Right. So how do you have a conversation with like a potential client who's interested in working with you but wants to use their insurance? So a lot of it I learned from from Kelly and Miranda, right? Hmm. That initial consult script that that they did, that has since evolved into my own version of it, right? Mm. But whenever I get a phone call, I remember that this is somebody who is in pain or a family member of someone who is in pain that is reaching out 
and that it's such a hard and vulnerable process to even get to that point to dial those numbers and make that call. So I think there's a lot of just empathy and compassion for the courage that it takes to do that. And so that's kind of how I approach the call. And it's just a conversation, the way that you, you and I are having a conversation right now. So I just speak to that and, hey, what's going on? How can I help you? And I ask a few questions to try to get a little bit more information to figure out if, it, if I can help them. I can't help everybody. And I've learned that I can't help everybody. Hmm. So if I can't help them, I immediately refer to people I know in the area that can. And they're incredibly grateful. But for the people that I can help and they want to use your insurance, then it becomes much more about education, about out-of-network benefits and super bills. And I keep a calculator on my desk. So I help them get a sense of what it looks like financially to work with me. So, you know, I ask them, you know, what are your out-of-network benefits? Well, and, I, and we run through like, like a little mock example Hmm. of this is my fee, This if your insurance reimburses this much, this is how much you can expect to get back. So a lot of education. So that's where that background in teaching really serves me. I like that, that you like humanize that process, right? Like even that from that initial call, someone likely that you've actually never talked to before, interacted with, right? Like you, you bring your heart into it, right? And I feel like this is, could be a whole other podcast episode, but letting go of people that are not good fits, trusting that people that are clients that are good fits will come. Right. right. And I've got to say that to anyone listening and who's starting their private practice, I know how scary it is to refer out when you don't have a full caseload. Mm. But I have found that when you do, you'll get more calls mm. because it's it's that good energy. It's those good vibes that you're putting out into the world and you're being true to yourself and what you can and can't do. And it kind of comes back to you. The more you do it, the more abundance you have. So I think if you come from an, that abundance mindset, like this isn't going to be the last phone call I'm going to have today <laughs> or for the week, that really helps to remember that when you're making that referral out and yet you still don't have a full caseload. Eric, I wanted to wrap up with uh, this, sure. this final question, which is if you could sort of take a step back and like look at all of the wisdom and learnings that you've picked up in trying to build a private pay practice in heavily insurance-based city, what would be sort of the three pearls of wisdom that you would share? I would say first and foremost, again, that you can't be all things to all people. You have to know who you serve and you have to know your ideal client. You also have to know your worth. So I think that would be the second thing. Like, What makes you different as a clinician? Sometimes we forget that, that that's mm. just as important. And know your numbers. For therapists, numbers scare them. Mm. Financials scare them. Don't be scared of the numbers. You've got to know your numbers in order to run a successful business. So even if you're not good at it, if you could find somebody who is good at it and is kind and compassionate and can walk you through it and gently you know, do that, but you've got to know your numbers. Otherwise it, it just, it won't work. And that's mm. just the practicalities of it. When you say like, know your numbers, this is like, do you do your own bookkeeping? Do you hire somebody? Like what sort of, I guess, tell me a little bit more about that. Like know your numbers. What, what for you, what does that mean? So for me, it means I know my overhead expenses. I know how much income I need to generate to cover my expenses, to be able to pay myself the wage that I need to earn in order you know, to take home to my household for my household to function. 
I know my the taxes that I pay quarterly. I know what my overhead is. I know the percentage. I know my overhead out on an hourly basis. I know it on a weekly basis. I know it on a daily basis. So I know all those numbers inside and out, backwards and forwards. So it makes me very, very clear about how much I need to charge to maintain a success a sustainable business to have a sustainable business model because if I don't do that I've learned that I'm doing a huge disservice to the community because then I won't be able to be in business and then I can't help people that's a good way of looking at it (laughs) Erica thank you so much for doing this where can more folks learn about you and the good work you're doing in the world well I hang out online mostly but the website is probably the best place to find me, which is www.envisionwellness.co. That's kind of my hub. Perfect. Erica, thank you again for doing this. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Have a great rest of your day. Hey there, hope you enjoyed my conversation with Erica. And especially if you are considering creating a private pay practice or you're on that journey where you have a private pay practice and it's just not going the way that you envisioned. I hope that today's podcast session has been helpful for you and kind of gives you just a different way of looking at things and gives you some new ideas. I'm really looking forward to carrying and continuing this conversation about today's podcast session. And we're going to do that in the Selling the Couch community. So if you haven't joined us, please come on over. It's absolutely free to join. It's over at sellingthecouch.com forward slash community. As I was reflecting on this session, there were kind of three things that I really took away from this conversation, and I thought I would just sort of share those with you. One is, I think, just the mental aspect of creating a private pay practice and running a business, and especially a private pay practice. The reality is, as you guys may have heard other conversations in building a private pay practice, most clinicians say that realistically, it takes a solid two years to build a decent caseload, especially if you're full like 100% private pay. So part of what that means is, I feel like we're all equipped with this, which is we just have to have the mental resiliency to be able to ride those ups and downs. I was reading this recently, and I can't remember exactly where, but this article was discussing sort of the the characteristics of of successful entrepreneurs. And one of the things that they found was that it was not necessarily like how smart you were or sort of your business acumen or sort of even like like the, the innovative nature of what you're creating, but it was actually just the amount of resilience that an entrepreneur had that usually was like a strong sort of predictor of, of success. So they didn't let sort of the ups and downs deter their journey. And I think the bigger thing in that is they had some measures and, and they learned over time to not personalize those ups and downs because that's just sort of the nature of building something. And I think, especially if you're thinking about a private pay practice, I think that that aspect or that point is especially key. The second point that I took away is just the importance of niching. I was like Erica, where I was like, I don't get this whole niching thing. Like what? You know, like, you know, I was always kind of trained as a generalist. And I know that as I got further in my training, I, I started more focusing on things like mood disorders and stuff. But I don't know what it was like when I was thinking about private practice that just the thought of trying to find a niche, it was just, 
Yeah, I don't know. It was, it was hard. And I appreciated what Erica had to say. And I think my third point was related to this. The key to niching is not to let perfection get in the way. I feel like a lot of us struggle with this, which is we want to have a perfect framework or a perfect outline of what this business journey is going to look like. And the reality is there's just a lot of factors that you may not be aware of that you know, all of us may not be aware of until we take that first step. And I think related to that, the thing to remember is I feel like we're all very like creative and talented people, right? So just knowing that when you jump into something, let's say a niche doesn't work out, or you have to sort of nuance it in a, in a sort of subtle way that you do, that you have the capacity to do that. And if you definitely need support and help with that, um, we're here in the STC community, of course, for you. Show notes to today's episode can be found over at sellingthecouch.com forward slash session and the number 149. And Erica's website is again over at envisionwellness.co. Before we wrap up, just wanted to take a moment to thank the team over at Turning Point HQ for supporting today's podcast session. So Turning Point HQ is the result or is the brainchild of David Frank, who is a financial planner for therapists. And as I've mentioned before, uh, Dave and I actually have gotten to be good friends, just an awesome person to work with. And one of the things that Dave will help us to do is create a holistic and an intentional retirement and investing plan that supports you to lead a really awesome life. Because ultimately, I think for many of us, it's we invest, right, to create the life that we want. And uh, it's to do it in an intentional way. And Dave, honestly, is just one of the most like heart-centered folks that I've ever met. And you're absolutely going to be in good hands with him. You can learn more about Turning Point HQ and the awesome services that they provide over at sellingthecouch.com forward slash turning point HQ. And if you go through that link, uh, Dave actually created this seven financial mistakes that therapists make. It's a free downloadable and uh, you can download it right there. And then you also get $200 off any of your, any of the services that Dave provides. Be sure to mention that you heard it on STC. Have a great rest of your day and thanks again for tuning in. Thanks for listening to the Selling the Couch podcast. For more great content and to stay up to date, visit www.sellingthecouch.com. So if you've been listening to the STC podcast for a while, or you've been listening to podcasts and you've had this thought of, Mel, I would love to launch my own podcast in order to grow my business. Just wanted to encourage you to check out our free podcasting workshop, which is over at sellingthecouch.com forward slash podcasting workshop. You can basically sign up at a day and a time that works for you. It's 90 minutes. And when I do these workshops or when I record them, I truly believe in the quality teaching, so it's going to be well worth your time. We're going to go through gear recommendations and how to launch strategically and how to think about monetizing your podcast and how to line up your podcast with your existing offers and how to do it strategically and authentically uh, and not salesy and slimy um, and all of those things. So again, the link is over at sellingthecouch.com forward slash podcasting workshop.